See, every person here today, by the end of this sermon, you will have to make a choice. Will the good life for you be attached or detached from eternal life? What will you pursue most? The cultural good life or the Christian good life? Because they are completely different. Eternal life and good life go together. Paul's going to tell us that. And in verse 17, he's going to show us that when you separate eternal life from the good life, this is what it looks like. And we'll look at that in verse 17. And in verses 18 and 19, he's going to flip it over and say, but when you attach and keep together the good life and eternal life, it'll look like this. And that'll be verses 18 and 19. So we're going to unpack both of those. And along the way, as we are doing that, here's what you need to ask yourself. Which one is true for me? Have I separated the good life from eternal life or am I keeping them together? And is it obvious that that's true by the way that I use my money? So let's take them one at a time. Verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides he says, with, a, with us, with everything to enjoy. The word charge, some, some versions say command. It's a word that is used three times at the beginning of 1 Timothy, three times at the end of 1 Timothy. And it, when someone is charged, it's something serious. Remember the old commercial E.F. Hutton, when he speaks, everybody listens. I know that's dating myself there a bit. But he's speaking, you know why? Because he's saying something important. See, when you're charged, like Timothy is charged, he's telling, see, this is something. And it's so important that Paul calls it understanding what truly life is. So this morning, this isn't really just a sermon about money and how you look at it. This is a sermon about what you think life is really all about. So our, our paragraph verses 17 through 19, in the preceding paragraph, they are tied together. And they're tied together by a very significant phrase. And depending on what version in the English you read, they would be identical. Verse chapter 6 and verse 12 says that you may take hold on eternal life. Verse 19 says this at the end, take hold on that which is life. Or as the New King James says, the exact same thing, that which is eternal life. See, that's how crucial it is. What really is life? Is your life God-centered? Is it about eternal life? Do you know him? Because that will make all the difference, all the difference by your, of your definition of what the good life is all about. In the text, Timothy is charged about this very thing in his own life. He's a pastor, and Paul says, make sure that you don't fall into the snare and trap of the love of money. In fact, in verse 11, he says, Timothy, run from it. Because pastors aren't excluded from the love of money either. And then the other charge, he says, not just you, Timothy, but you tell your people, you tell the rich people in your church, don't be lovers of money, be lovers of good works. Have a good foundation, he says. Help them to know the difference between the world's definition of a good life and my definition of a good life. Well, Pastor Walker, that's really important, but I don't really think I have a problem with that. I don't think that I'm really tempted too much. I don't think the money has much of a control over me. I don't think this is really a big issue for my life. 
Let me tell you about Jesus' words real quick. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 says this. He says to us, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. In other words, every form of it. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you read the Gospels, you'll find this, that Jesus is constantly, almost more than any other subject, warning people about the dangers of greed and materialism. I have read the Gospels many times, and I have read that verse many times. Well, you know what I've never read? I've never read one single time that Jesus ever says this, watch out for adultery. He doesn't. Because he diminishes it? No. Do you know why? Because when you're doing adultery, you know you are. You know you're being unfaithful to your spouse. You know you've brought another person into your marriage relationship. You know it. There's no question about it. See, it's different. You know why he says watch out for greed? Because nobody who's doing it, anyone who's doing materialism, anyone who is doing is into greed, nobody who's controlled by the power of money love thinks that they're guilty of it. Nobody. If you're in adultery, you know you're guilty. But here's the thing. Greed is insidious. It's a horrible trap and a snare. Let me tell you how I know. I, I hear it all the time. Here's what Americans say. I really don't have that much extra money to do anything with. I can hardly make ends meet. I really need all this stuff. See, you can only say that sort of thing in America. Because if you go outside of America, people will listen to you say that and look at all that we have, and they'll say, you've got to be kidding. In fact, truthfully, they would probably laugh at us. I have a girl that we're still waiting for. Her name is Sandia to come to Haiti. We've been in the government program for a year this month, and she still hasn't come. And I call her. Do you know what she texts me for? She doesn't text me for nice things or more clothes. She said, Pastor Walker, can you send some money? I haven't, my family haven't eaten in two days. She has cysts in her body. She has worms in her intestines. And so she asked, could you send some money so I could get medicine because I'm very, very sick. And see, for us, uh, we think that we have hardly any money. When's the last time that you said, oh, I don't have enough money to go see a doctor. I don't have enough money to eat, and it's been days. See, it's a different thing. You know why? Because we bought into a different perspective. So I think Paul would say this to us today. I think he wants us to understand it right off the bat, that when he talks to us about rich believers... He means us. See, we need to be understanding that we understand that this is what it means to be rich. We are rich in this country. And he addresses us and them in verse 17. In fact, he uses the word rich or a form of it four times. In verse 17, he says rich, riches, richly. And he says the word richly again in verse 18. Because here's what Paul wants us to know. That there are two ways to be rich. And since we all are, this, is, this matters to us. See, there is rich without God, and there is rich with God. There is the good life without God, and there's the good life with God. He says, tell those who are rich, and then he adds this phrase, in this present age. See, rich now. He wants us to see this, that if you have eternal life, you should view being rich now differently than everybody else. See, 
our eternity and our riches in heaven should have a bearing on how we view and use our riches here. So how do I know? How do I know if I have this age's view of the good life? Well, he gives us an idea. Can you look at verse 17? Charge them not to be haughty. Uh, The word itself has a bad connotation just listening to it, doesn't it? It literally means this, high-minded. It's someone who's thinking very, very lofty thoughts about themselves. See, it makes you self-absorbed. That's what the power of money does and loving it. It makes you self-centered. You don't see yourself accurately because when you begin to have money control you and its power overtakes you, you become arrogant. See, when you have money, you think that you're better than others who don't. It makes you view others with l- that are less money than you, that they are less than actually you are. You don't just say, hey, I'm better than them financially. You just say, I'm better than them, period. See, we feel that we can give a charity, we can give some money to the poor, which is condescending, but we don't actually have to be or spend any time with the poor because we can do something good without actually being good. It makes you believe that not only are you better than everybody else, haughty, but it also says this, it makes you believe that everything that you've done or everything that you have and all that you possess is because of you. It makes you hotter. It makes you think that you are really the source of all of your own things. It's like Nebuchadnezzar who said as he looked over Babylon, he says, is this not great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power? I'll see, there might be some of you, if you're caught up in haughtiness, you might be able to say this, is this not a great portfolio that I have put together? That I have done because of my financial acumen? (laughs) Is this not a great company that I have started and made wealth of myself? Did I not build this with my financial wisdom? Is not this a great successful job and position that I have taken and I have made into something great? Because of my skills and my talents. And we could go on and on, can't we? We begin to think that all that we have and the cars that sit in our driveway and the house that we live, all of that we enjoy and the bank accounts that we have is because of how smart we are, how wise we are, how talented we are. But we are warned, and Israel was warned in Deuteronomy 8, 17, God says, beware, like Jesus said, beware lest you say in your heart, my power And the might of my hand have gotten me my wealth. See, Israel always needed to remember this. God instructs them because it's easy to forget that it wasn't their mighty power that got them out of Egypt. It was God's. When they got to the promised land, it was all the the houses that were already built. They didn't build them. God did. All the lands that were there and all all the things that they enjoyed that were already there for them when they won the victories, God gave them all of those things. Paul says it this way in the New Testament, what do I have that you have not given me? And the answer is nothing. Haughtiness comes from believing that the good life that you enjoy is something that you solely have achieved. Listen to the words of Agur and his wisdom in Proverbs 30. He says, give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Do you know who's famous in the Bible for saying, who is the Lord? Pharaoh. 
When Moses said, let my people go, he says, who is the Lord? Now, who is this God? Who is he that I should listen to him and let, my, let your people go? See, Pharaoh thought this, I can have the good life, but I don't need the God life. I, can, I don't have to have the Lord, whoever he is in my life. And so we rebel against the, the authority of God. See, a full bank account, if we're not careful, can make us full of pride. We can have a fullness, not that comes from God, but comes from ourselves. And that's where we get the little phrase, full of ourselves. We can start believing that all the things that we have and enjoy are because of how great we are. And that's why Bernard of Clairvaux said this, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. Because it's not very often that rich people like all of us are humble enough to recognize that all that we enjoy comes from God. So, Pastor Walker, how do I know? How do I know if I'm living by this age's view of God's, or the good life? Well, haughtiness is one thing. And then he says this, and tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's the only time in the New Testament the word uncertain is used. And it's used of the word trust. In other words, don't trust in your money because it is not a good object of trust. When I first came here, maybe, maybe three or four years, Kevin Stiles was the youth pastor. Maybe some of you remember him. And one day we were set construction. We were down having lunch, and we were joking around. And he was drinking Mountain Dew, and I wanted it. So I went up and grabbed it from him, and I started to run, and he started chasing me. We were like kindergartners or something. Um, so I jumped down the stairs into the kitchen. You know the little stairs that run down? I jumped. So I wanted to get ahead of So I jumped. I didn't even take the stairs. I just jumped down all of them. And when I landed, I, I heard snap. The outer bone of my foot just broke in half. Oh, it was awful. So I had to have like a little bit of, a, you know, uh, stuff on my foot. And I had to have crutches. And so after being on crutches for a couple of weeks, I was going over. And it was the winter time. I was going over to my friend John Snee's house, and it was during the day. I can't remember what we were doing. I think he was working on the set, too, and we were just going over to get a bite to eat or something. So I was going up to his house. It was really snowy and icy, and I walk up the first steps, and he can open the door, and he goes, okay, just remember, I have this really slick floor when you first get in. Be careful. I go, ah, whatever, you know, the big deal. So I go in there, and I'm walking in there, and he's ne next to me, and I put my crutches down on the floor, and he had walked in right before me, and it got wet all over the floor. So I put my crutches on the floor, and immediately they slipped out from under me, and I went to, I, could, I was going to fall, and so I grabbed him by the shirt right here, and I grabbed him to try to, but he wasn't ready for it. And so I fell down, and I pulled him down on top of me. So I'm laying on my back on the floor, and John is laying right there this close to me in my face, and, of course, his wife, who had a, a nail business in her house, they come out, they hear all the racket, they came out, and one of her customers came out. And as soon as I was there on my back, John's right here in my face. She goes, oh, <laughs> what's happening? And then Maria says this, oh, that's our pastor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I, I put my hope and I put my trust, those crutches were going to hold me up. <laughs> They weren't a good object of trust. Not at all. Can I tell you? Money is a precarious object of trust. If you put your hope for significance in it, 
if you put your hope for security in it, you're going to wish you didn't. Proverbs 10, 15, and 16 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The, power, the, poverty, I'm sure, I'm sorry, the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Let me tell you something about ancient cities. When you lived in the ancient cities in Jesus' day and before, they were the only place that you could find ultimate safety. You lived inside the walls of the city. You were safe from wild animals. You were safe from invaders. They protected you from all the problems that you would otherwise encounter when you lived outside the city. But it took money. You actually had to have money to live in the city. And mostly rich people lived in the city and poor people lived outside. That's why their poverty is their ruin because they don't have money to live inside the city and they're ruined because they get attacked or they get kidnapped or whatever it is that happens to them. Because they're not rich. But see, inside the city, for rich people, you get significance. You have status because you live inside the city. But did you see what the proverb says? The Proverbs doesn't say that the rich live in their strong city. It says the riches are their strong city. You see what it says? That the city that they find all their protection in what they find their safety in, their significance in. You know what the city is? It's not a literal one. It's a financial one. It's in their wealth. Couple this with Proverbs 18, 10, and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Not money is their strong tower, but the name of the Lord. But it says this at the end. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. In other words, they think this in their mind, in their imagination. I have money, therefore I have significance. I have money, therefore I have safety. And they find it because of their money, not in God, but in what their money can do for them. See, truthfully, and I don't think it would be much argument from anyone here today on it, trusting in money is the alternative to trusting in God in our culture. People who prescribe to this worldly view of the good life find their identity and their significance in all that they have. That's why they buy the name brand clothes that they wear. That's why they have to have a certain kind of car. That's why they have to live in a certain neighborhood. That's why they like to tell you the names of powerful, famous people that they know. See, that's what they're like. Why do they feel that way? Because the power of money can make you trust in it for your significance. But not just your significance, your security. See, I have money, some say, so I'm important. And the other side of it is I have money, so I'm safe. You begin to believe the lie that because you have money that you're in control. Because you have money that you can really solve all your problems. But let me tell you this, and hear me, you cannot replace God with money. You cannot. Do you think that money can stop death? It cannot. Do you think that money can stop tragedy and cancer? Car accidents? It cannot. Do you think money can stop heartache and broken relationships? Do you think that money can stop divorce? It can't. Only God can do those things. Thus, Paul says, tell them, don't trust in uncertain riches, but, contrast, but tell them, trust God. 
God in his sovereignty and providence, who gives us all things richly to enjoy, he says. See, no God life, Paul would say, no good life. If you trust money instead of God, if that's your alternative, there is no good life available. So when we separate those two questions, what is eternal life and what is the good life, when we think they are completely different kinds of life, you know what happens? We become haughty. We begin to trust money and make it the alternative and replace God with it in our lives. Perhaps that's you. But Paul says, let me tell you the other side of the coin. Let me flip it over and tell you in the last two verses. See, when you have eternal life and the good life and you keep them together, this is what it will look like in contrast to verse 17. In these verses, verses 18 and 19, like the word riches earlier, the word good is repeated in this text. Do good, he says. Good works. A good foundation. See, Paul's going to tell us this is what the truly good life is. It's not a focus on what you have. It's a focus on the good that you can do with what you have. You see the contrast? There's two choices today. There is the good life that centers around getting, and there's the good life that centers around giving. And you have to decide which one. One flows from eternal life. One flows from social life. And Paul describes it in very, very vivid details, and he uses three infinitives to do it. He says, to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous. Those infinitives, those three things, doing good, good works with your money, being generous, that's, he says, let me tell you, that's really the good life. Last week, we talked about our attitude toward money, and we said that money loving wasn't the way to go. That's not the right attitude toward money and our finances that God. See, this week, I want to talk to you not about your attitude as much, but your actions with money. Because I'm convinced as I read the entire book of 1 Timothy that good works, having a good foundation, and having a life that's, here's the good life. You know what it flows from? From being a good person. Because the word good is not just used in our text. Oh, because the good life is way, way broader than that. Listen to all the uses of the word good in 1 Timothy. Good conscience, good warfare, good in God's sight, good works, good standing, good servant, good doctrine, good service, good fight, good confession, good foundation. Do you see what Paul's building? He's building an argument that you can't even imagine. You couldn't even begin to think that the happiness that you're really looking for isn't in the things that you possess. Unless the good life comes from a good life. Do you have that? See, that's what Paul wants us to know. To have the good life, you must first have a good life. Well, what does that look like, Pastor Walker? What would it look like if my good life flowed from eternal life? Two things, Paul says, and I'll be done. He says, to be generous and ready to share. See, it affects you on the inside, your generosity, and on the outside that you're ready to share. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It doesn't just mean giving money in the deacon's offering like you will do tonight, although that's great. It's more than just giving your regular 10% every week in the offering plate, which you should do, but it's more than that. 
This is not some dutiful giving that you have to do because you're obligated. This isn't some fear that you have that if I don't do good with my money, that somehow God will make me have flat tires or I'll have something awful and it'll take my money from me another way. No, this is not even someone who's waiting to be asked because you have money and someone may come up to you and say, could you help? No, you know what it says? You'd be generous, willing to share, ready to do it, willing to ready. This is someone who is looking for an opportunity. This is someone whose hearts change so radically that they know the people in our church and they know the needs that they have and they go up and they ask and they pray and they give and no one has to tell them. They're not pushing. They have their own initiative. See, because they have a good life. They have eternal life and that eternal life is working to make the good life the God good life, completely true in their lives. My wife and I, a few years ago, and I encourage you to do it, not right or wrong, just good, better, best. We started and actually made an actual account like any other account in our finances. We have a ministry fund. It's really the way that we've prepared for Sandia this last year in particular to be able to come here because we'll have to get her clothes, insurance, and medical treatment, and she will have to have all kinds of things. And that won't just happen by accident. So when she comes from Haiti, it's going to be different. We have to pay her plane trip, and, and on and on it goes, right? So we saved up for it. But we have a ministry fund. So if we have people we know that have needs in the church, we can give them to them. We can help have money. We have money set aside because this is all we do with it is money for ministry. You know why? Because... I believe, as I look at Jesus, as I read the New Testament, that giving like this is not primarily spontaneous. It's not just, hey, Pastor Walker announced something, which is good, and we do that from time to time. Give to this project, give to this, and give to this in October, and missions, and we do that. But here's what I think it ought to happen. It ought to be planned by us. I'm not waiting for it to be announced from the pulpit. I'm not waiting for it to come and fall into my lap, although those are good things too. But I'm planning for it. I'm looking for it. We're trying to have a difference in people's lives. You know why? Because willing to share. And the word share is koinonia. And it means fellowship. Let me tell you on straight terms. It means this. We give to others in our church because we are family. We're part of the same body of Christ. And so when I went to see Marivel before Wes passed and went to be with the Lord, I was preceded by multiple people in our church who went. Not they're not pastors, but they're in the same family. And I've seen them give cards, visits, meals, helps, phone calls, texts. See, no one said anything. I just said at one service, my sisters who aren't a part of this church gave toward the camp fund for kids. $2,000 later, we've had all kinds of donations. See, generates initiative in our lives putting money aside so that I can minister to someone. Why is this so important? Well, it's way more important than you think. (laughs) Way more. Paul says this, here's the purpose for it, verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves. You have a bank account, and it's not at Chase or Santander or any of the other ones around here. You have one in heaven. See, We have a bank account here and we have a bank account there. We have an earthly one and an eternal one. And the possibility is worth thinking about that you could have a big bank account here 
and not anything there. We could be storing up all kinds of money here. We could be saving for retirement. And you know that commercial, you have to have a number, and your number is this if you're going to live this long after retirement. See, we store up money here, and we save, and that's all good. But what about there? What about treasuring up, as Jesus says, treasures in heaven? I don't want to stand before God a pauper. I want to stand before him and say, I bought into the good life, the real good life. I don't want to have money here and be bankrupt there. Proverbs 11.4 puts it in context, I think, very well. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. When you stand before God, money here will be no profit, no gain. It won't merit you any favor because you had millions of dollars or whether you had three dollars. It won't matter. It doesn't profit in the day of wrath. But righteousness, coming from a good life. See, having the view that God is the good life, eternal life, and it overflows. See, that's what we're after. And so Paul would say, how you use your money expresses eternal consequences. It really does. That's why he says that you may lay hold, that you may hold on to, Eternal life, that which is truly life. If you really have eternal life, you will have this view of the good life. And if you don't have this view of the good life, it is possible that you don't have eternal life. Because in Paul's mind, they go together. He says to us today who are rich, turn your money into real riches. Do good with it. Good works with it. Good works with your wealth makes all the difference in the world. What would motivate us to do that, Pastor Walker? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. See, Jesus lived the ultimate good life, the ultimate one. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. He was the ultimate giver or act of generosity. You know what will free you? You say, I can't imagine living that way, that I save up money to give to other people, that I give 10% of my income, and above that I do things for other people, and I'm always looking around to see what I can use my money for for other people. How can that ever be? Though the cross is the only way that you could be freed. Did you see what the verse says? Paul doesn't motivate people to give because they're poor or because they have needs. It's not some feeling in your heart because someone moved you with a picture on the screen. You know what he says ought to move you? Grace. Grace. And he wants you to know, here's why you give this way to others. Because this is how Jesus gave to you. See, he was the richest. And he went from rich to poor. Why? What would move him to do it so that you could be rich? See, he gave up the good life so that you could have eternal life. And in having eternal life, you can now live the good life. The really good life. The truly good life. But only the cross can do that. You see, the good life I've been talking about, you can only have it through Jesus. If you don't know him, you don't have eternal life, you've never put your faith and trust in him, see, you can today. To have eternal life is to have the good life. 
But to have the good life without eternal life, it's not even life at all. But you can know him today. You can put your faith and trust in him alone. It will change everything, everything, including how you see the good life. And you have a choice, do we not? All of us. How will you view the good life? It matters. It matters. Taking hold of what is truly life. Do you have the good life? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, perhaps you're here this morning and up until now you've already made your choice about who and what will define the good life for you. You'd say, Pastor Walker, definitely have been down the cultural definition of the good life. We have all kinds of savings and special accounts for vacations, retirements, trips, school bills. But what about things that will even matter far more in eternity? Perhaps you're here this morning and the reason you've chosen the cultural definition of the good life is because you don't know that you have eternal life. But you can. But Jesus comes and says, listen, I died. I gave up my riches and took your poverty so that you could have eternal life. Would you trust him today? Would you repent of your sins? Would you surrender your life completely to his lordship? Would you come to his cross and know that he's the only king who forgives sin? You can today if you put your faith and trust in him. But maybe you're here this morning, people of God, Rich people of God. Pastor Walker, I need to get a different view of the good life. I need to let my eternal life impact my good life and how I view it. And I have to say, I've fallen quite short of that. I don't give give 10%. I don't give at all. Maybe my hand is closed to others because my heart is closed to God. And you say, Pastor Walker, I need a different view of the good life because of the life that Jesus has given me through his cross, death, and resurrection. I want to see it differently. I want to live it differently. I want to have good works, good deeds, and a good foundation. See, I want it to be eternal for me. Would you let God work in your heart this morning? Oh, Father. Move in us. We have so much. To whom much is given, much is required. I pray, Father, that we would live the good life because we've been made good through Jesus' cross. Oh, we don't do good to get to heaven, but if we're going to heaven, we will do good, particularly with our money. Help us to be a church even more so, to be marked by people who are generous, ready to share, looking for opportunities to invest in the kingdom and eternity. And may that, as we saw on the screen at Snow Camp, change lives for eternity. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.